And very quickly, although uh, the population is more spread and scattered, very quickly large crowds start to follow him and they come from all around. Uh, Jesus is a young-ish rabbi in the Jewish faith. Uh, He gets his start by being invited to teach in synagogues wherever he goes. Uh, The synagogue would have been the first century uh, equivalent roughly to what we do here on a Sunday in church as Christians. Uh, But this day, instead of sitting in the synagogue, he heads to the mountains. Uh, Maybe it was for practical reasons. Uh, The crowds had swollen to unmanageable numbers and so we needed to find an open-air auditorium. Uh, Maybe his popularity among the common classes already has Jesus getting on the nose of the religious elites. We certainly know that happens down the track. Uh, Although maybe what he's doing is, is partly symbolic as well. We've all seen images or comic strips of people scaling the mountain to meet the guru at the top to get his wisdom. Uh, Well, the Jews had their own tradition. Thousands of years before Christ, Moses had led the Israelite people out of slavery and he delivered them God's law from the top of the mountain. A different mountain, but a mountain nonetheless. And what follows in Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 from his Sermon on the Mount is definitely in this tradition of what Moses has done. Uh, Jesus is the true spiritual leader of God's chosen people. He is leading them through the wilderness in paths of righteousness. He brings them to the heights of true wisdom and insight which comes straight from God. And in places throughout the next few chapters, Jesus even picks up bits of the law of Moses uh, and teaches them more fully and expands on them. So having gone up the mountain, Jesus sits down, it says, as Jewish teachers did in their synagogues, they sat rather than stood, and it says his disciples came to him. Now this line at the very start has caused some debate from people who you know, pay attention to uh, the intricacies uh, these two, there's two words used in this verse for the people following Jesus. You'll see at the top there's the crowds and then at the bottom there's the disciples, the crowds uh, who are gathering and then the disciples who come to him. And the question is, are the crowds one group and the disciples a different group, another smaller group? Or are they, the, or are they just two different words to describe the same group? Or is it uh, more of a Venn diagram where some people in the crowds are also disciples or you start you graduate from one to the other it's not super important but this bit is important who is the sermon for is the sermon for the crowds if they're a distinct group or is it simply for Jesus's nearest tightest group of followers his disciples the the elite or something like it which does matter That question does matter for applying it because is Jesus only teaching his tight circle or is this for everyone to hear? Uh, It matters because some Christian traditions have applied the whole rest of the sermon like this. They will say Jesus is not teaching the crowds. It's not really for them. Okay, we get to read it now but sort of only over someone else's shoulder. Jesus isn't teaching the crowds. In fact, he's retreating from the crowds into the hills so he can have a more focused and intimate conversation about things that are particularly important for leaders, but not necessarily required for the common man or woman. Jesus' words in this sermon are definitely and absolutely for all people. 
He is not, in this moment, set in a class above or distinct from others. This is for the crowds. And really, all you need to do is read to the very end. So we haven't read this yet today, but Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, the very end of the sermon, it says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So they're there. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. This is for the crowds. This is for every man or woman or child. So you don't get out of it that easy. What he says is for you. Uh, If you look at how Matthew and the other gospel authors use the words crowds and disciples, uh, they are somewhat fluid. A crowd is just a big group of people. The word disciple is often used to describe particularly Jesus' 12 disciples who became the apostles. Uh, but sometimes the word disciple does, use, uh, does get used to mean a much larger group. Uh, but we can tell who this is for just by reading the whole of the sermon and saying, well, this teaching is for all the crowds, for every man and woman. And then this, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Well, you might wonder how uh, Jesus could have taught them anything without opening his mouth. But then picture this. School starts tomorrow and we've all sat in a classroom with a teacher at the front desperately trying to get everyone's attention. Barry, stop talking. Lucy, put your pens down and look at me. Charlotte, stop punching Liam. I'm waiting. I'm not going to start until everyone's quiet and looking at me. I know we've all sat in that classroom and some of you have stood at the front of that classroom being exactly that person. Uh, But the picture here in Matthew 5 is very different from that. Deliberately, Jesus takes his seat and everyone gathers as close as they can and they sit where they can see and hear and nobody's talking. Nobody is fidgeting. Nobody needs to be shushed or told to pull their heads in. Nobody's distracted and looking around. Everyone has their own mouth shut and their eyes are fixed on Jesus' mouth until they see his lips just slightly part. He takes in a breath and he speaks. And everyone is listening. And this is how he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at all of these together then, uh, at first in a general sense. Uh, These sayings of Jesus are called the Beatitudes. Maybe you've heard that word, maybe you haven't. The word beatitude sounds like the Latin word for blessed, which starts all of these sayings in the Latin translation of the Bible. So um, we still sometimes call it the beatitudes. To say someone is blessed in this sense uh, is to say they are, as I've said already, happy, or to say they are honoured, that this is a person who is blessed in that they have received God's approval. What more could you need? Uh, It is funny for Jesus to say uh, that the poor and the mourning and the needy would be the lucky ones in God's kingdom. Uh, But we'll come to that contradiction or paradox in a minute. First, we're going to continue to have a bit more of a general look at some of the similarities and differences up here. So first of all, um, down the very bottom, blessed are you when others revile you. Uh, I'm going to just knock that off the list of the Beatitudes, not because it's important, not important, uh, but because it doesn't fit quite the same 
uh, formula. As you can see, all the others are blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn. This last one is blessed are you. It seems to be an expansion of the one above it. So we can just knock it down for manageable sake, and we'll still come to that, uh, for the sake of being manageable to eight. Uh, Another reason to think that these eight lines together are ones that make up the neatest block of the Beatitudes is because of this repetition that wraps all the rest up. The first one starts with theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the last one ends with the same. That's the only repetition apart from the word blessed all the way through. Uh, Everything else seems to be unique on each line except the first one and the last one. Bundle it up to say this is the kingdom of heaven which forms an inclusion. Uh, And the implication here is that all the other therefores that you see throughout there are a more detailed exposition of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven encompasses everything that's in between. It means comfort, inheritance and victory. It means satisfaction, mercy, seeing God, being a son of God. So all of these are different ways of viewing what is essentially the same broad thing, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Also notice this distinction between verse 3 and 10, um, is that the tense changes. So the kingdom, uh, there's is the kingdom of heaven, it says in verse 3 and in verse 10. But then all the other blessings that make that up haven't quite yet arrived because they're all in future tense. These shall be, shall be, shall be. One of the phrases that I found incredibly useful, although it sounds like a paradox, to understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven is that the kingdom of heaven is both now and not yet. There is a sense in which the kingdom of heaven has arrived. The blessings are there to be had right now and yet there's a sense in which it's not all quite finished and there's some things still to come. The kingdom is now and not yet. And just understanding that Jesus speaks sometimes about the kingdom as a thing that is now and sometimes about elements of the kingdom that are not yet can help untangle, actually, as you keep reading his teaching, um, the fact that sometimes he is speaking imminently and sometimes he is speaking uh, in a future sense, but he's still speaking about the same thing. Uh, We notice the same thing within each saying as well, actually, that there's this now and not yet because it says, actually, uh, blessed are those who mourn right now, already blessed, for they shall be comforted. It's a blessing received in the midst of things like poverty and loss, even though the completion of the blessing is still to come. It's not unlike, uh, I don't know if you know anyone like this, I don't really to my knowledge, but you've probably seen it in the movies, you know the, the, the trust fund kid? Uh, the kid who is from a rich family uh, and he's, you know, there's millions sitting in a bank account waiting for him to inherit uh, when he comes of age, uh, but for now he doesn't yet have access to the trust fund. And yet, even though the money's not in his account or his hand just yet, just knowing that that's coming down the track uh, leads to a certain level of freedom and presumption in the way he's able to live his life. He can take risks because there's a safety net coming. And yeah, all right, in the stories, usually the trust fund kid is a spoilt brat, but he doesn't have to be. That's just the way things normally go. Uh, But here, God is saying that, uh, that we have a trust fund and it is waiting and we shouldn't squander that privilege Uh, There are blessings to be had even now and there is a safety net uh, and an inheritance to follow. I said before that there's this strange thing pointed out, and you would have seen it yourself, that there's uh, this blessing goes through poverty 
uh, to inheriting the kingdom uh, and blessing through mourning uh, to being comforted. Uh, This kind of reversal, this paradoxical sort of thing. Uh, So let's take a bit of a dive into that theme, this theme of reversed fortunes, which is a constant theme of the kingdom, a constant theme throughout the Bible, where the poor are rich and the hungry are filled and the weak are made strong and the merciful receive mercy. God's story throughout the Bible is one of reversing fortunes. Uh, My kids are learning, for example, uh, the first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, We also know about God strengthening the weak, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. He does all this through miracles and wonders in the literal sense, but he does it also to illustrate his mission, uh, to redeem what is bad and broken and to raise it to glory. That's God's mission. And that goes for you. God has come in Christ to redeem what is broken and, and bad and to raise you to glory. It's a theme all through the Bible. Uh, it's in the Beatitudes. We start out blessed, but we talk about uh, the poor and mourning and meek, etc. But then in the end, there is the kingdom of heaven awaiting. We sung together Psalm 23. It does a similar thing. The Lord is my shepherd, and yet I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But I fear no evil, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus follows the same path and just to use the words of the Apostles' Creed that we looked at today, Jesus is God's Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit and yet he suffered, was crucified, died, was buried, descended to the dead. But on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he's our victorious King who will judge. Through Scripture, humanity follows the same thing. Made in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. But sin in Genesis chapter 3, fallen, broken, dirty, dying. But then in Christ, redeemed, forgiveness, joy, even glory awaits. As we look at this, by the way, some denominations and different Christian churches uh, will emphasise different parts of this journey more than others. Uh, So there are, um, just for reference sake, uh, and and this will change from church to church, but uh, it tends to be some of the more, say, charismatic or Pentecostal churches are sometimes prone to leaving out the dip in the middle, or at least downplaying it, uh, so that uh, we major on the fact that, you know, uh, we've been designed in God's image and we have all this glory to await, uh, but don't necessarily always have the right categories for understanding uh, what it means to suffer or, or... or, or, uh, or be sinful, even. Uh, there are other churches that hang out way too much in the bottom, and, and the Presbyterian church, I'm looking at you. Uh, some churches hang out way down here, uh, forgetting to smile sometimes because we're all so sinful and broken. Sometimes uh, deciding to tackle uh, suffering with a stoic, hardened, chiselled face rather than remembering joy because that's what we're uh, told to expect. But all of this, what this means for you and your life is really important. Please, please keep this picture with you. Your suffering and trials can be felt and grieved. They are real. True sorrow isn't a sign of a lack of faith. Even Jesus cried out on the cross. 
but also between the tears, sorrow can sometimes be laughed at. And with faith, sorrow and hardship can even be relished because God uses these things to teach us and improve us and bless us so that no hardship ever gets wasted. It's not a waste, but it might feel like it. No matter how cruel the thing you suffer or how suffocating, no matter how much you might even deserve the suffering that you feel, or on the flip side, how unjust it might be, no trial gets wasted. To use another metaphor that Christ uses, you are a seed, buried, sometimes parched, sometimes deluged, sometimes frozen, sometimes scorched, but asked to die so you can grow into who it is God destined you to be. Does this trajectory feel familiar to anyone here? I'm I'm sure it must. I'm sure this isn't just in the imagination and the wisdom of Christ, but actually in the felt experience, I hope, of, of most people. Uh, Let me make just one last point about this general trend before looking at a few of the Beatitudes on their own. Um, All of the things in here that invite God's blessing and his kingdom, they're either trials or virtues. So there is an absolute brilliance to this. This is one of uh, my favourite things about the faith. God's kingdom is for all. So you can't be excluded by being born into poverty or the wrong family or some other general misfortune. You don't miss out because you're not skilled or gifted enough. The challenge, in fact, is that people, the people who are apparently most at risk of missing out on the blessings of the kingdom are the people who have it too good. Or too easy. The people who don't have to try hard to be liked and accepted by people. Uh, The people whose success just falls down at or who are born into a family that's never known what it's like to go to bed hungry or, or worry about a bill. The challenge for you, if that's you, is to stoop low enough and to shed enough weight that you qualify for God's chosen people through lowliness and thirst. You're not born in or out. Only a select few can reach the things on the top shelf, but even the smallest child can reach what's on the bottom. And the kingdom is there for all. It's bottom shelf in a way. So we are going to revisit uh, these Beatitudes throughout the term uh, because they set up themes that uh, get unpacked throughout the rest of the sermon, and uh, Jesus' sermon. Uh, We'll marinate and soak in them. But uh, a bird's eye view is probably almost enough uh, for the rest of today. So let's just get into a little bit more detail. Uh, And again, in true fashion, I'll give a bit more detail for the first few and a bit less for the last few. Starting with the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, what is poor in spirit? That would be a helpful thing to know, wouldn't it? Uh, It's a bit of a mystery. Uh, The best illustration I can think of is a story that Jesus himself told. He doesn't use the words poor in spirit, but it seems to sum it up. So Jesus tells a story about two men who go to the temple one day to pray. One of them is a Pharisee, that is, you know, one of the religious elite, uh, and the other one is a tax collector, someone who uh, is not admired typically by your average man, someone seen as a traitor and a thief. And the two men go to pray and uh, the Pharisee stands on the highest step in the temple and he casts his eye around and his eye falls on the tax collector 
and he says, God, thank you for blessing me. Thank you that I'm not at all like that tax collector over there. And then the tax collector, when he comes to pray, bows his head to the ground and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says only one of those two men was justified that day. And it wasn't the one who was full of self-justification and pride. It was the man who brought himself low and asked for God's mercy. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. Have a look at this in Isaiah. This is an Old Testament prophet, chapter 61. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So it is not so much about finances, although finances, or lack thereof, can bring people low sometimes. Uh, Money has its uses. But uh, this is a poverty of spirit, a humbling of yourself. Uh, Poverty of spirit, by the way, is not a thing you can have too much of. You know, Jesus is not saying, you want to be poor in spirit, but not too poor in spirit, because that would be... Yuck. The more poverty of spirit you have, the more blessing there is for you in the kingdom of heaven. But don't make this mistake, uh, because self-loathing is not poverty of spirit. It's not even, you know, an extreme continuation of poverty of spirit. There's pride, there's self-loathing, and somewhere in a sweet spot in the middle is poverty of spirit. That is not the way it works, okay? You cannot have too much poverty of spirit, Self-loathing is something else entirely. In fact, self-loathing has more in common in some ways with the arrogance and pride up this other end. So, as an illustration, and this is a, this is a reasonably blunt illustration, there's nuances that you can add for yourself, um, but self-loathing or even some expression, expressions of depression have more in common with the arrogance of the, tax, uh, the, arrogance of the Pharisee than the humility of the tax collector. Because someone who uh, brings themselves into this spiral and sits there of self-pity and loathing is actually disqualifying themselves deliberately from God's grace. So the tax collector... uh, Sorry, the Pharisee says, I'm too good for God's grace. I don't need God's grace. And they disqualify themselves. The self-loather says, I'm too bad for God's grace. I'm not worthy. He could never look at me or love me. Well, there is no faith in that because you haven't listened to what he says. God says to the one, the Pharisee, you need my grace and I will give it, but he doesn't want it. To the person who is self-loathing, God says, you need my grace and you can have it, but they don't get it because they say, oh, not for me, thank you. Both people should choose instead to stand, um, not beyond the reach of God's grace, but to stand and kneel and ask for it. Have a think about which side of the coin uh, you tend more towards yourself. Uh, And whichever you are, like a proudful or self-loathing person, take your time to confess your sin, acknowledge your need, Lower yourself and be poor in spirit before God and receive his grace, which he gives.
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is a very similar principle, in fact. Uh, It's grief really mainly about sin. Uh, A bit about your own sin, but it's also looking at uh, the state of sin in the world. So uh, looking at the sorry state of the world and mourning how far we've fallen. Uh, And so mourning in this sense is longing, like the hunger and thirst for righteousness that we'll read about later. It's it's like a longing for God's kingdom uh, to be more now and less not yet. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think there's a daily prayer for that. Uh, We could use it. That's mourning. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's not the way things are right now. That's the mourning, that's the yearning. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek sounds a little bit too much like weak, doesn't it, for most people's liking. Uh, liking. Well, let me tell you this, the Lord loves your weaknesses too. Uh, It's how he shows off his own glory. So no matter how pathetic meekness may sound, and it's even got that weak, tinny ring to it, meek. Uh, But let's not run in fear uh, if this is a thing that God says is good. Well, meek doesn't mean weak anyway, but sometimes it looks like it. So picture this, for example, a man on trial. And while he sits, accuser after accuser stand up and publicly slander him with all the things they say he said and done. This man sits and listens to it all. And then the attorneys hop up and they say, oh yeah, he's done these terrible things and this is the case against him. And then he is given finally a chance to speak and defend himself and he just chooses to say nothing at all. Well, he said nothing, so we don't get many clues, but you can choose to believe what you like about this man's silence. You could say, well, his silence is proof of his guilt because if he had a defence, he would have said something. Or you might think one step further and say, well, there's a chance he's innocent, but... He's a pretty weak fish if he can't even stand up and speak to his own defence. The other possibility, of course, is that he is innocent and he's just not afraid of his accusers and he's perfectly assured in the approval and blessings of God and that he will inherit the kingdom of heaven, if not in this life, then the next. And maybe you recognise that this was Jesus' position when he was put on trial before his crucifixion. He said almost nothing, although people were lining up to slander him. And one of the most arresting things about Jesus' conduct in all that time was that he was silent. That's meekness. But that was a quiet strength that was mistaken by many for weakness. He submitted to the corrupt authorities... He was willing to be misunderstood by the masses because his conscience was clean and he was on a mission and his true innocence was already established in the courts of heaven where it matters. So these things are meekness. To be meek is to obey the Lord and to be meek is to be a submissive person. Even at times submitting to incompetence And even at times submitting to ignorant people. Because whether or not you trust your leaders, you belong to the kingdom of heaven. So who cares if you lose sometimes? Who cares if your meekness is misunderstood and people think you're a weakling? We live for God's kingdom and the meek will inherit the earth.
a few just really rapid fire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Strive for improvement. Strive for moral improvement. Exercise virtue and know and seek the strange satisfaction of always wanting more. To reach to be more kind or more patient or more forgiving or more humble. And that person who always wants more of the right stuff will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the merciful, well, they're the ones who are always giving, but not necessarily receiving. And it can be exhausting, can't it, being patient? Giving Those who give grace, but run the risk of being taken advantage of. But know in time, it is the merciful who will receive mercy. If there is a chance that you will only ever get as much mercy as you've given... Well, then give all you can and ask for more so you can give more. Be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The world thinks that living in purity uh, means missing out on all the fun. Blessed are the pure in heart. It is just not true that being pure means you miss out on all the fun. And even if it does, whatever. Fun or see God, you choose. Pure in heart it is. Choose purity and you will see God. But remember, purity in this sense is pure in heart. And this is another thing that will, this will thump us again and again as we read the Sermon on the Mount. Purity isn't a veneer or a show. It's not like uh, those stadiums where they paint the grass green so that it looks better than it is. God values authenticity, not a show. He doesn't want his grass painted green. He wants deep roots of goodness in the heart that produce fruit. It's got to be over and under. It's got to be all through the person, pure in heart. And this is, maybe this is some of the righteousness that we strive for and hunger and thirst for. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be sons of God. Again, these are the the peacemakers are the ones who give, the ones who find themselves in the breach between warring parties, uh, the ones who keep their mouth shut instead of biting back, people who stand in the breach to smooth troubled waters, not meddlers, by the way. Uh, some mediators cause more trouble uh, than they solve. But if your family or workplace has a faction, strive to be the one that all parties can talk to. Be the peacemaker in the group. This is so practical, isn't it? Because everyone knows a scenario where a peacekeeper or peacemaker is needed. Don't be the one who stirs things up. Don't be the one who, you know, um, steals information from one group so you can share it with the other. Don't be the one who builds your ego by picking sides or, or causing trouble. Be the peacemaker. It's pretty hard being the peacemaker. But it's worth it. And the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptised and when he comes out of the water, the Lord says, Behold my son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, that's a very special, unique honour given uh, by God the Father to Jesus the Son. Uh, But it's interesting that it's only a page over in your Bible that he's talking about regular people 
accessing something like what it means to be a son of God in Christ by being a peacemaker. And of course, peace is what Jesus came to bring. He he came to bring peace, to reunite warring parties, uh, to take God who uh, who is holy and pure and us who are unholy and impure and to reunite us and to bring peace through forgiveness of sins. Finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We use persecuted the wrong way sometimes. Uh, Sometimes uh, people are mean to us because we're actually just not very nice to them or a bit annoying to be around. And we can call it persecution because, well, Jesus says persecution's nice. Uh, We can sanctify our own bad behaviour and the consequences of our own actions. But this is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of being pure in heart and moral and virtuous and good. And those people will be persecuted. Jesus is the prime example. But if that comes your way, blessed are you. One final thing. Uh, Because this does get expanded slightly here in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I just want to put one little thing out of there where Jesus says, on my account. Uh, I said earlier on that the Sermon on the Mount is a very popular piece of text. Uh, It's popular among Christians. It's popular among people who aren't Christians as well. Uh, Years ago, Gandhi came out and said that uh, the Sermon on the Mount was one of the greatest pieces of teaching and wisest pieces of teaching in all the world. Karl Marx was a lover of the Sermon on the Mount. But these people who come at it from the outside are looking at these virtues and saying... something like, like, wouldn't this be beautiful and isn't this nice and doesn't this, uh, doesn't this sort of formula of speech uh, encourage us to be good and humble and, uh, and nice and decent? And that's true and that's good and I'm kind of all for it. If people, if people in general and at large want to behave the way uh, the Sermon on the Mount frames good behaviour, then that sounds pretty good to me. But please understand that all of this is actually in Jesus' own speech. This is in reference to Christ. So it's not just people who are poor in general or people who mourn and have suffered loss or people who are hungry and thirsty and etc. This is people who have gathered to Christ, who are his disciples and who uh, go through all these things with faith in Christ. So, okay, humility is good. And it's better than nothing if it's all on your own. But it really only makes sense and reaps its reward in Christ. Because only he brings the kingdom. And so all of these things only make sense really if we have faith in Christ and his ability and his power and his willingness uh, to bring this blessing about. And let's try in his strength to live up to it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, We thank you for uh, the paradoxes that uh, at first confuse us, uh, but then make perfect sense. 
Uh, we thank you for the wisdom that uh, at times hovers somewhere just beyond our reach, but we know in our spirit, because of your spirit, that it is true. Help us to live by faith in Christ, uh, knowing that all in him have been uh, redeemed, uh, that in Christ uh, there is uh, peace has been made between God and mankind. And we thank you uh, for the humility and righteousness and purity that Jesus modelled uh, and gives to us. And please give us strength to follow. Amen.